Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello. This is Gigabit Nation Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to welcome everyone in the audience today uh, thank you very much for taking time to, to be with us. Today's program, as all of our programs are for the month of August, is sponsored by Hiawatha Broadband Communications, an FTP provider committed to connecting rural communities and economies to the world. And you can check out Hiawatha Broadband at www.hbci.com. So we're here to help give you good information on how to get more, better broadband to everywhere it needs to be, and uh, today we're going to talk about a very critical element of bringing broadband to communities, which is public-private uh, partnerships. Just one little housekeeping item here. We, don't, uh, we aren't going to be taking uh, call-ins, but the live chat room is open and ready to go, uh, and so let's, uh, let's work it. So our guest today is Gary Evans who's the CEO of Hiawatha Broadband, and he was one of my early uh, invites um, back when I was, like, dreaming up this whole Gigabit Nation uh, radio show, and uh, because we have talked a number of occasions for different uh, articles and stuff that I've written, and uh, he's got a very good perspective um, on, you know, the role of uh, the private sector and the public sector and how to work together to get broadband in places where it needs to be. Um, but now before we get there, Gary, thank you very much for being on the show today. My pleasure, Craig. And um, it's also been very interesting because we were supposed to be on yesterday, but Gary got that call that many of us dream of, which is a call to hang out with um, the President of the United States, and I am just so jazzed about that that I want to get into that a little bit because the reason for the invite was to talk about um, broadband, uh, you know, Gary's perspective on broadband and how it affects uh, local economies. So, so Gary, just let's go into, you know, you, you're, you're winging it back from Vermont, and all of a sudden you get the call, and what was the nature of yesterday's event? The uh, President had... Uh, has begun a three-day bus tour of Minnesota, Iowa, and Illinois, Craig. And yesterday was his first stop in Cannon Falls, Minnesota, a community about uh, 50 miles northwest um, of Winona. Uh, my son happens to be a bank president there. Um, and uh, it was a town forum in an outdoor setting, uh, so we sat in a beautiful park by the Cannon River and uh, discussed all sorts of issues important to the country. Good deal. And then you specifically uh, had a question uh, regarding broadband, if I remember the transcript correctly. I did. Um, the uh, president, uh, after making some opening remarks, and you probably heard um, that he took uh, several shots at Congress for things he didn't like, <laughs> but yeah, after I that said he was opening it to uh, questions, and they would be done in girl-boy, girl-boy fashion to yeah. <laughs> satisfy um, his wife and daughters. So uh, um, after taking <laughs> the first female question, he pointed at me. I had a front-row seat and uh, said, sir, what's on your mind? And uh, so I raised the importance of broadband uh, in a setting uh, where I thought the comments probably would uh, at least be heard and hopefully listened to. Great. So now what exactly did you bring up and what was the president's response? <clears throat> I told him first that... Uh, I thought that 
it is the small companies today who are really the innovators and the job creators. And I ask specifically that the job creators not be penalized. As we see the mega mergers occur, um, Century buying Quest as an example, or um, the other mergers that we've read about, uh, job forces tend to contract as opposed to expand. I pointed out to him that our workforce, which uh, just over a year and a half ago numbered 60, uh, today went over the 100 mark as, as we continue to grow our business. That resonated with him. He seemed very pleased by that. It also got a nice round of applause. And then we talked about the incredible importance of broadband to rural America. Um, it's a subject near and dear to my heart for lots of reasons. First of all, because I live in rural America, but I have also seen what the power of broadband can do for rural America. Mm -hmm. yep, definitely, you are a player in that space and a participant, so no doubt you have perspective. Now, what was the uh, president's response? president said he was critically aware of the importance of broadband, uh, that his administration is interested in making certain that rural America has both wired and wireless broadband available. Um, he was preceded on the uh, uh, program by Secretary Tom Vilsack of the Department of Agriculture, and uh, Vilsack also had talked about the importance of uh, broadband uh, to the rural economy, and uh, that should be great for you, Craig, because tomorrow my understanding is that you have the Russ supervisor as your guest. That's right. Uh, Jonathan Adelstein will be with us tomorrow, and he will be talking specifically about um, some of these programs and grants beyond the broadband stimulus that's going to be available for uh, folks, and people need to really dial into that. You know, there's a lot of people wanting to move broadband forward, and I think some people assume that the broadband stimulus is, you know, it's over, which technically, yes, it is because the money has been awarded, but there are still programs in place being pushed fairly aggressively by RUS, and there's some question also about, you know, where after all this debt ceiling and budget discussion and so forth, you know, where where are they in that picture? You know, are they still funded? Are they still funding and so forth? So yes, they're they're gonna it'll be a good insight specifically into uh, into RUS. So um, from both of their comments, both the president's and Secretary Vilsack's, what what do you think the biggest takeaway? for you was in terms of the government's position on broadband and, and uh, rural America? Uh, the first takeaway was that I'm pretty convinced that federal money is going to be available uh, to supplement uh, projects in rural America. And I suspect, Craig, that that will be true not just of Russ, but of other agencies in government as well. As a matter of fact, we are currently benefiting from a grant uh, from the Department of Health and Human Services for a telemedicine initiative. So my first takeaway, uh, money will be available. My second takeaway is public-private partnerships are going to be a spotlight of whatever the grant programs are that are going to be rolled out. And my third takeaway that it seemed clear to me that the president is in tune with the importance of broadband and is not going to take it off his radar screen in the foreseeable future. And that is definitely a good thing indeed. So to your first takeaway, uh, tomorrow uh, one of my questions to the administrator from, from RUS will address um, you know, working with other grant programs within the federal government that you know, mix and match and to come up with solutions. Uh, the public-private partnership thing obviously is key, and and we should probably segue into you know that topic because one of the things, one of the reasons that you and I have had a number of discussions has to do with uh, public 
private partnerships and and the value that they bring because you have on the one side the the public sector the communities and stakeholders who uh, want to move broadband forward and they obviously understand the needs of their communities and they have some sort of stake in that relationship that will make broadband a reality then on the flip side you have the private sector companies that obviously their business is providing broadband services in one way, form, or fashion. And, you know, we really need to look at how they, working with the public sector, can advance both entities' um, you know, agenda, which is to, to, to do well and to, um, you know, provide good broadband. And at the end of the day, we all win. I mean, and I assume that's, you know, that's, that's pretty much the consistent position that you've come from as well. Well, that's absolutely true. First of all, there is neither in the private sector the inclination to do everything that needs to be done or the money with which to do it. Uh, In other words, many of the providers today are not interested in enhancing networks uh, because they're still trying to uh, realize full potential from the networks they have. On the other hand, we have, in many cases, municipalities, in one case in Minnesota, a county, uh, in still others, um, you know, several regions that are looking at what they believe is needed for their survival. And, And I use that term advisedly because I do believe uh, that broadband technology has the potential to um, revitalize dying communities and regions and has the potential to make counties incredibly successful as well. But somehow the entities, the players, need to get together, um, matching up resources with people who generally and genuinely know how to uh, operate networks to make certain that the result is a success both both for the private sector partner and for the public sector partner. Right, okay, and that makes sense. And to set up the our top ten list, because this is very intriguing to me how you have prioritized uh, some of the, the tips and recommendations, um, it is important um, that, you know, the people understand their – their partner. I mean, they have to understand what their needs are and and then how they can adapt to their own operation in order to be able to uh work together with with uh with each other. And so, you know, you have the experience of being in a number of public private partnerships and you also have networks that uh Hiawatha Broadband runs and owns uh in in its entirety. And so I think your position is is you know, you've seen both sides of the house. So how did you come up with this? Um, actually, there's two sets of top ten recommendations. One is from the <laughs> public sector side, and the other is from the private sector side. But how did you come up with this? Well, I was actually, Craig, asked to uh, speak at the University of Minnesota, a, a telecom forum, and uh, was asked about the opportunities and barriers and started thinking about our experiences and thought that, you know, one of the ways to approach this was to take a look at the sorts of things that we have at least discovered need to be in place if if a project is going to be successful. And that's both from a provider standpoint or a private sector partner standpoint as as well as the public partner. Mhm. Okay, that makes plenty of sense. So let's just jump right in. I mean, I I've, you know, I've gone through your list a couple times. We're going to start with the public sector perspective, but I like the, you know, number 10 and your first comment is, you know, there is no substitute for vision. So let's, you know, take each of these points and you can give us a little bit of, you know, feel for the, you know, what what you what you're really trying to get across here. So what about the vision? Yeah, I I think um You know, I think, Craig, from a municipality or county standpoint, they really need to know why they want to do a project, and it's got to be a better reason than we want lower prices for our residents. 
Um, and and so for me, it all comes down to vision because in the projects that we're involved in, where there has been key solid vision, those projects have been enormously successful. Uh, at the expense of taking too much time, let me just make one uh, comment or example about that. St. Charles, a community that's about 3,000 residents, about 20 miles west of Winona and, and 20 miles east of Rochester, came to us in 2001 saying that they wanted to develop a state-of-the-art network in their community because they wanted to become the number one bedroom community to Rochester, Minnesota, where the Mayo Clinic is located and where IBM has a large uh, installation. They had concluded that in order for them to be successful in their goal, they needed to have state of the they needed to have state of the art connectivity because people would want to be able to work at home as successfully as they could work in their office. Um, we had no interest up until that time in building a network in St. Charles. They actually offered to build the network for us, if you can imagine that, because they had concluded it was the only way to reach their goal. And so we collaborated on a strategy that brought a network um, to their community that opened in 2002. At the time that network was begun, there were two tiny housing developments being contemplated in St. Charles. Today there are eight very large developments occupied and the local and regional and statewide media in Minnesota has referred to the community as Boomtown. So it's a clear example of knowing why you want to build a network and then pulling out all the stops to make it happen. Okay, that makes sense. And that leads us to your number nine tip, which is interesting because it may seem counterintuitive, which is you know, you don't want to do this just to accomplish lower prices. Why, why explain that one a little bit? Well, uh, from my perspective, the issue is lower prices will follow. Uh, that's a given, but you'd better have a better reason for um, building a network than just to accomplish lower prices. I would submit that the biggest impact of HBC networks, whether public-private partnerships or simply private undertakings, are the economic development advantages that they bring for a community. So our first issue is always, try, always trying to convince them to think bigger than simply lower prices because that will happen under any circumstance when competition arrives. Makes, uh, makes perfect sense there. So now we look at point number eight, and there you talk about doing your homework. Uh, which I've admonished people to do on many occasions. So fill that one in a little bit for us on the homework part. Well, the the issue is that uh, if if you are planning to build a network as a competitor, um, the first supposition by the masses or the residents is that what's the price going to be because they envision that whomever's coming in is going to offer the same thing as the incumbent. And that's why planning differentiators that can make a critical difference to residents of a community, they might be in the area of education, they might be in the area of health care, uh, they might be in the area of security. Certainly, they're going to improve quality of life. But it's very important to know what's on the minds of residents of a community before that network plan is finalized and the construction begins. Um, I think there is no substitute to a key uh, market research or feasibility study, if you will, to determine what it is that's going to um, light up the faces of the people uh, in the community. 
Mm-hmm. So you talk about, um, you know, I guess the assumption by the public side that they don't have any particular weakness, um, which is interesting because you make the point that they too are a monopoly, which you know would shake people's up a little bit, I think, in, in that thinking about that in that context. But what did you mean by that? That they're a monopoly. Well, the the issue is that uh, any business has weaknesses. <laughs> it's it's just a fact of life. Well, we'd rather not have them. There are things that we don't do uh, as well as we ought to. And uh, I just believe that it is necessary to constantly look at those things that you could do better. Um, and and I think that uh, uh, the service equation is clearly one of them. Uh, how many services are people subscribing to and how many services might the network carry? Um, I think that that's a critical reason, as I point out in my list, um, to look for a private sector partner because in many cases um, – the people in a municipality, as example, as an example, thinking of a network, don't have the capability um, to dream as large as they could with a little help from their friends. Ah, right. So the the private sector partner, in essence, expands the vision because they can come in with a different viewpoint of the world, and the community itself might have envisioned alone. Yeah. That's essentially it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now, your next point, number six, you talk about recognizing the differences between uh, the public and the private sector. So it's basically, if I'm reading this right, you're saying to the public sector side, and again, again, the public sector can be a consortium of local businesses and the library and the local government. So it doesn't necessarily have to be that the government alone is in that no. part of the partnership. But um, – there's a difference between the two. So explore that one a little bit. Well, there is a critical difference in the area of finance. Municipal finance, as an example, is far different um, than private sector finance. And um, and municipalities, as, as an example, have little experience in running a business that has to operate as if it were a private sector enterprise. Um, the, the cities that take on builds are essentially becoming for the first time um, a competitive entrant, if you will. Most of the enterprises they run, power, water, etc., are monopolistic in nature. And so having the experience of a private sector partner to help you understand the key indicators of how well a business is doing is, I think, a very critical component to any project. Mm-hmm. And I think if I'm – just to interrupt one second. If I'm remembering correctly, in um, an interview for an article – I was doing, you mentioned that uh, knowing what you know now, if you had it to do over again, and you were referring to the uh, project involving Monticello, Minnesota, that um, you your group would have learned more about municipal finance before starting, and, and Monticello's people would have learned more about uh, business finance before you two started. Am I paraphrasing that correctly? You have a very good memory um, <laughs> because that conversation took place a while ago. But that's exactly right. Neither of us knew the things about um, the financial side of the business from the other's perspective and what made the financial side tick for them. Uh, I mean, you know, from the standpoint of municipal finance, that's that's like a world of darkness for us, just as I'm sure our world was a world of darkness for them. So um, now knowing what we know as we contemplate new partnerships, we make certain that we are exploring the things we need to know while sharing with our partner 
the kinds of things that we believe are important from a financial point of view that will predict the success of of an enterprise. Mm-hmm. So fundamentally, bottom line, people need to understand finance, both on their side of the house and on the, the private side of the house. And that, and that makes, I mean, our sense. worlds are entirely different. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, uh, we would consider depreciation a critical component uh, in any project from a financial point of view. Um, from from a public or a public side uh, point of view, depreciation is nowhere to be found in their vernacular. <laughs> I can so, see what you know, it's like those kinds of project. things that would have been helpful to us in Monticello, and it would have been helpful to Monticello, too, to understand the differences. Okay. Uh, maybe I'll just take a little bit of a break here. Uh, why don't you take two minutes to explain the, the Monticello? Is it Monticello or Monticello? Monticello. Okay. All right. Um, the, to describe the, uh, the the nature of that relationship, uh, what were you guys trying to achieve ultimately, and how is it working out today? Um, first of all, Monticello is uh, a community about 40 miles north of the metropolitan area of Minneapolis and St. Paul. So it is a northern suburb in many ways of the Twin Cities. Uh, it felt that it was slipping behind the economic development spectrum because um, it neither had a state-of-the-art network in place, nor were, it, were its providers interested in improving their networks. The community first, or the city first, went to them asking how they might partner. Um, after um, they had exhausted those opportunities, they began to look around. Um, they identified us as a company that might offer help to them. Um, we went up. We talked to them. They asked us um, if we would consider partnering with them, and uh, our first answer was no. <laughs> essentially because we didn't think we had the right kind of experiences to say yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, as their determination grew um, to get that network in place and as our understanding improved of the absolute necessity of doing that, um, and one of our employees reminded us that part of our mission is to help rural America solve its connectivity issues, we decided to say yes. We now manage um, the FiberNet Monticello operation. We have a general manager there who is employed by HBC. Uh, All other employees are employed by the city of Monticello. And, um, you know, that's a very difficult thing. You need a very good partnership to make uh, that uh, possible. Um, I'm pleased to say that we have worked with the city's help through all of the issues, and uh, the operation is growing more quickly than the feasibility study estimated it would. Uh, it has been up and running for a year now, and its subscriber numbers are ahead of the curve. Um, it's proving to be a very good thing for Monticello because, if you can believe this now, Craig, there are currently two fiber-to-the-home networks there and a third being comp- contemplated. <laughs> So PDS, who was the phone provider, built a fiber network shortly after um, it was announced that FiberNet would go ahead or that the city would go ahead with its initiative. Oh, right. And I that. now Charter Communications is also considering that. Is there any chance that the entities might try to work together as opposed to competing? Because, I mean, I realize that Monticello, Monticello is not a tiny place, but at the same time... It's not uh, a big place. 
true. So having the competition is good. I don't want to get rid of that. But at the same time, um, you know, and maybe this is a question for a lot of small communities and, and rural communities. If you have all of a sudden an interest by two or three providers, does it make more sense to try to create uh, complementary services, and will that still bring down prices and improve quality, or you know, do you just basically look at it as you know, it's just it's wide open competition and the consumer benefits and just let it run? I, you know, it's a it's a good question, also a hard one to answer for me. I have seen little willingness on the part of private sector uh, telecom providers to partner. Uh, in in cases like this, um, uh, a pretty typical story is a public entity determining that for economic development reasons or others that they need to build a network and going uh, to their current providers and saying, how can we work together to get this done? That That seems an absolutely perfect solution to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's why I think they come to HPC because they know that's how we feel. Right. Uh, most, for one reason or another, are not interested in those sorts of initiatives, unfortunately. But at least, and as your point number five uh, uh, says, you need to at least go seek that help, and uh, and then and then go from there. Which uh, yeah. you know is logical. I, I don't think. I, I mean, we would never uh, encourage a public sector potential partner um, to make a decision to build a network before at least um, exploring extensively opportunities to partner with the incumbents. Mm-hmm. That just makes a whole lot of sense. To me, um, unfortunately, as I said, it it rarely happens that the I won't say never, but it rarely happens that the private sector incumbent is willing to partner. And uh, you know, I I think both sides lose in in that prospect. Right. Um, I, I I think it's a matter of uh, the private sector partner not quite being able to get its head around what are we giving up and what are we gaining. Right. And uh, I think I think in all sincerity the time has long since come when people ought to be sitting down and determining what the answer is. Uh, because um, I think saying no is simply not an answer. Right. It's, uh, uh, you, you know, you can vote no, but it doesn't mean nothing will happen. Right. So let's uh, let's take uh, moving along. Um, your your recommendation number four is you know prepare a list of non-negotiables, which I find interesting. So what's that all about? Well, it it means that on each side of the fence there has to be a list of things uh, that uh, both partners individually consider an absolute must for them. It's simply another way to make sure that no one is working in the dark. Mm -hmm. I mean, if one of HBC's conditions is um, we want the absolute ability to run the network as we believe it needs to be run um, we will provide the city with um, opportunities for input and feedback, uh, but in the final analysis, if it concerns network operations, we need the right to say um, that isn't acceptable to us and move on. It's it's not a matter of, of I well, I hope it's not a matter of being pig-headed about things. Um, I think it's a matter of Sometimes um, public sector partners can get pretty carried away by um, isolated examples of of, uh, sentiment that may just not work well for uh, 
um, the total populace. Okay, and I can see where that makes a lot of sense. All right. Um, so know, know where your boundary lines are, basically, is what it comes down to. Uh, yep. Your point number three addresses the issue of measuring success. It's got to happen, no doubt about it. Let's talk about that for a minute. Well, I, I think the, uh, the you know the temptation, um, perhaps on each side, uh, but I would see it at least in our cases as more critically on the side of the public sector partner is to measure tons of things, uh, to collect data on tons of things until you're so awash in data um, you can't see the operation. What we try to uh, what we try to ask um, our public sector partners for is the ability to work together to create a list of a few, a very few indicators by which the success of the project will be measured. So, for instance, in Monticello, it's the number of services in place. Um, services is actually, for us, a more important equation than the number of customers. Mm -hmm. um, and so we consider services. Uh, we consider, um, you know, several financial indicators. Revenue is a key. You want to make sure that the business is growing not just through expense control but through revenue generation. So um, we measure the project against revenue and the revenue budget. We measure the uh, project against cash flow. Uh, cash flow uh, for a new project is a more important indicator than than profit, from my perspective. Uh, profit is um, really a a book thing, if you will. I'm I'm no finance guy. Don't pretend to be, uh, but I do know that cash is king, and and so we measure. Uh, cash flow against budget. And I think um, also another key indicator and one that absolutely has to be measured is uh, customer satisfaction. Oh, and yeah. so you can measure that in a number of ways that don't have to be, that don't have to represent expensive um research projects. Mm -hmm. Okay, that that, uh, that definitely makes a lot of sense. So now we move to point number two, or tip number two, almost at the top of our list here. So you talk about communication. Never stop communicating. Let's communicate about communication. How, how, how should we approach that? Well, I, I think the key here is that you should never assume that your partner knows what you're thinking or knows what's going on. And you ought to take every opportunity, particularly in today's world when avenues of communication are, are so numerous, to make certain that you're keeping your partner abreast of progress or conversely the lack of it, if you will. Um, I, I think that the one thing that I would always like to achieve with communication is that uh, there are no surprises for either party ever. Um, that's pretty idealistic, I understand, but you know, um, it, it shouldn't be a situation where at the end of the month, your partner frankly finds out that it's been a pretty bad month and all of the indicators are going in the wrong place. I think if you're doing the job correctly, they're being informed on a regular basis, either by phone or email or in person. And uh, and so when the month comes out, um, you have um, provided them with enough information to understand uh, why the indicators are where they are, but even more importantly, what you're doing to get them where they should be. Mm -hmm. I I find very clear logic in that. 
And so, well, so, the issue, okay. Craig, as you and I both know, is every problem in the world is a communication problem. Eventually, that will be the root. <laughs> somewhere, yep. somewhere along and the line. And so, uh, you ought to learn how to do it well. Mm-hmm. I agree. Let's uh, let's talk about then the number one tip. Number one tip from the public <laughs> sector uh, perspective. You talk about, you know, you don't do the deal till you have the right partner. Discuss. Yep. What are we talking about here? The uh, the the Evans anatomy determines for me whether and when deals are right. Okay. Whether it's hiring a new employee or whether it's taking on a new partnership, my head has to think the deal is right, and to be a little crass about it, my gut has to feel that the deal is right too. Uh, unless both of those anatomical features are in agreement, I try to force us back to the drawing board to make sure why I'm not feeling comfortable. And uh, I will tell you that um, through way too many years, because I'm an old man, um, I have plenty of examples of telling you about mistakes I've made when one or the other of of those components weren't in agreement with the other. Mm-hmm. So I like to. I think another way of looking at this is potential partners need to know each other well. Um, I don't think that um, men and women should get married until they know each other well. And I don't think public and private sector partners should get married either until they know each other well, and until they are convinced that they can work together and especially work together well in the hard times. Right. And, you know, I I can't say enough about the compatibility factor. So we have been going along here at a pretty, uh, you know, in-depth pace here looking at these different topics. I want to shift now to the private sector, and we've got about, 20 minutes, but I don't want to rush necessarily because we can always, you know, this is the Internet. We can always bring you back for another discussion and fill out some of the details. And I think even if we come back on a second interview, we should talk about Smart Grid because we won't get to it today. But in another conversation with you, your ideas on Smart Grid were very, um, very interesting. I mean, I think our listeners... It's a subject near and dear to my heart, but I don't think the second 10 are going to take as much time to go through because many of them are, are pretty similar to the public side. Well, then let's run it on down. Let's start with number 10. It's all about the vision. Okay. Um, I think for the uh, from the provider or private sector partner's point of view, you have to test that vision. You know, does it reflect the good thinking that you want it to, and and does it match with the views of the residents in, in a community? Uh, pretty simple stuff, but also pretty important. Mm-hmm. And then we talk then next about uh, examining the business plan. That's point number nine. Yeah, I you know we have looked at a number of business plans, um, both for um, individuals contemplating projects and also for uh, communities or counties contemplating projects. Mm-hmm. And um, it's very, very important that people understand the critical components of a successful uh, business plan. And um, so we absolutely tell people up front uh, that for us to be involved, we have to have the opportunity to look at the plan, and they have to be open-minded to at least hearing the Mm -hmm. advice that we give them. Right. And, you know, I can see where the, for the benefit of the relationship, that's going to make a lot of sense. So number eight, now this is interesting because you talk about <laughs> testing the fortitude of the governing body to persevere. Yep. Give me a little bit more on that there, one. In, well, in any project today that involves a public sector partner, Craig, the there are going to be significant, sometimes horrendous challenges. Uh, as an example, uh, using Monticello, um, 
74% of the people who voted on a referendum relative to a community telecom project in Monticello favored the project. Mm -hmm. So community sentiment was solidly in favor. And and so the community proceeded, the city proceeded, and immediately one of the incumbents sued and delayed the project for a year. And the bonds for the project held in abeyance at the very last moment. There was like a week to go on the escrow account when the Court of Appeals finally upheld Monticello's right to build the network and the Supreme Court in a rare uh, example of considering a plight and acting on it ruled just two days later uh, to uphold the appellate court's ruling. So if if you're not up for significant challenges, don't consider getting in the business would be my <laughs> advice. And that brings us actually to point number seven, where you say that there needs to be a public leader who's you know charismatic enough to 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 go through those kinds of hard times of suits and uncertainty. Is that correct? Yeah, it's it's been true for us in every partnership we've um, taken on. There there has to be that figure who is known to and respected by large numbers of people in the community, a person that people turn to with trust, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and we have been fortunate in every one of our partnerships to have that kind of strength um, that also helps to deal with uh, point number eight. When the going gets tough, um, the person who's willing to get going to make sure that everybody understands how important this is and that even in spite of challenges, it is in fact the way to go. So how would a private sector company, without stepping into a, uh, you know, an additional quagmire, are, are you suggesting that the private sector company identify uh, who's that charismatic leader and support them or to provide them information does the private sector company have some role in cultivating such a person? I mean, what's what's the acceptable role here? Well, first of all, Craig, they're normally there. Mm -hmm. They're probably the person, they probably are the person who, or persons, who started the community thinking about the project to begin with. Mm -hmm. And they are the people with whom you work closely or the private sector work closely to put the the necessary pieces into place so it's it's a role it's a it's a dual role if you will on the part of the private sector partner it's making certain that that person or people have the information they need um, to respond to questions that they hear in their role and in the case of the private sector partner, that that person is someone whose opinion is respected. So when she or he says, oh, gosh, please don't do that because um, you understand that you're getting very solid, useful advice. Mm -hmm. Good. That makes don't sense. know how to explain it better, but it's it's that out front person um, who believes in the project so much that she or he tastes it, feels it, believes it, lives it. Um, and as you look at uh, public-private partnerships or public initiatives, the ones that are successful all have a charismatic leader. As an example, uh, let me quickly point to uh, former Mayor Graham Richards in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Mm -hmm. uh, Graham practically carried that project to fruition on his back, and I would say that uh, the residents of Fort Wayne certainly owe him um, a sincere thank you for those efforts. Right, and I know Graham pretty well, and he has definitely been on 
on the case and has been a leader even after uh, he was no longer mayor. He's still out there leading the charge and giving people to think through all the issues and so forth. Uh, let's look at, you know, so number six deals with, you know, making sure that the community is doing this for the right reasons, which in some respects ties back to vision, if I'm not Yeah. Uh, it it ties back to vision and it ties back to the point about don't don't just do it for lower prices. Exactly. Do it do it for definite reasons that improve quality of life in the community and give reason and give residents a reason to rejoice uh, around what they are and then have created. Um, it, it's it's an absolutely um, critical key, um, and you know it when suddenly the community leaders are committed to the network, and they're really turned on uh, by what it can do for their residents in so many ways. Um, you know, if if my company uh, was just interested in delivering. Um, voice, video, and data services, um, I wouldn't be as excited as I am by it delivering healthcare services, education services, uh, and other quality of life services that really do make things better for the people it's serving. Okay, that makes sense. Now, point number five, you're saying, you know, sit down and meet with the city finance director and find out how prepared they are to meet your needs. Is there a yep. quick test that you do to say, okay, this person's got their act together and we're going to be great partners? We sit down and show them um, our uh, P&L that we need to generate every month. We take them through the components of it. We ask them if they can deliver it. And if they can't, we ask them if they're prepared to make the changes necessary to deliver it. And and by the way, we do the same thing um, from their point of view. Mm-hmm. What is it they want from us? How do they want to receive it? And do we have the wherewithal to deliver it, deliver it in the format in which they want it delivered? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, you go on to talk about uh, recommendation number four, you know, having your list of non-negotiables. And that, you know, I think we've already we've already covered, and that's going to be, yep. you know, I think. Yep, same as uh, point number four on the uh, public partner side of the fence. Right. And in similar fashion, number three uh, addresses measuring your success and making sure that all the parties are uh, involved with the um, – to that process of measuring how well you're doing and so forth. And so I think that makes sense. We can run on to that. Now, the next thing, number two, you know, you talk about uh, communicate. Obviously, again, it's very important. What do you do in the case when communication isn't happening? And it was interesting because I got a call from a reporter yesterday from Kansas City who was talking about the fact that people, the general public seems to be getting restive about the Google deal in Kansas City because there is so little information coming out. Now, I've met with a lot of the stakeholders in Kansas City when I was there, and I have had a couple of email exchanges with Google. So I know there's communication happening between the key players, but the general public is feeling that they're not part of the equation. Is this from your perspective now obviously we're on the outside looking in but is this a is this a potential problem for the I think it is a potential problem it certainly needs to be addressed you know there isn't anything in the case of Kansas City that the public wants to know that isn't known to someone right uh but but I think that and this problem by the way affects all of us um you know, we're building six communities this summer, and I sat down with my team and I said, you know what, we have never done the job that I wish we'd do in communicating with uh, constituents uh, constituents in the communities we're building. My recommendation is that we hire somebody to help us get it right. And uh, 
we hired a a firm with a very proven track record uh, to help us make certain that we were providing timely, useful, and desired uh, information to residents in the communities uh, that we're building this summer uh, via the means that they want to get it in. So we're using social media, we're using mass media, we're using telephone, we're using door-to-door visits. I mean, if if you want people to buy your services ultimately, they have to feel involved and important to the project from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And that means the public at large, and and and, and absolutely and we have to take that in consideration. Because I think that you know, you look at a company like Apple or Microsoft, you know, tr- the, the true international giants. Their, you know, part of their PR mission is to control the message. And yep. I am starting to feel that when it when we get into the into these public-private partnerships, that that corporate culture becomes a potential barrier to the maximizing of the partnership. It it does. As a matter of fact, Craig, it's very interesting to be talking about this in a discussion of public-private partnerships because I think gen- generally what you would find is the public sector partner more willing to and more prepared to and more experienced in uh, communicating with constituents than the private sector firm, who for one reason or another, most of them not good in my mind, um, wanting to keep everything as quiet as possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and and that's you know that's that's the thing that has to be addressed early on, I believe, by both parties, particularly the public sector side. So it absolutely does. To- that leads us to the number one, number one top recommendation for the the, public, the the private sector side is recognize the early signs of trouble. And we talked about in communication, you know, those what those signs might be. But are there signs of other types of trouble that the private sector partner needs to be aware of? Well, I I, I mentioned uh, a couple on my list. Um, you're in trouble when everyone wants to steer the ship, if you will. Uh, you know, there's still only room for one pilot on a ship uh, at a time. And um, if if the focus is constantly diverted because someone heard this from one person and someone heard something from another and whatever, and all of a sudden you get paralyzed by all of the things you're being told to do, that's a very bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there are the signs. Um, if you have a set of indicators, you need to look at them closely and steer the enterprise by them. Um, they will provide you with plenty of information for course corrections if you're paying attention. Um, And uh, if you discover that uh, communication is going on all around you but not with you, uh, I would suggest you'd better figure out a way to get in the middle of the discussion. Right. So, um, you know, it, it really does go back to um, those things that are just common sense. What's the communication saying? What are you hearing? Um, all of those things tend to be very early indicators of of things you ought to be paying attention to. Mm-hmm. So we have about a minute left. What's the one thing, if you could leave people with one thing, how do you make the public-private uh, partnership maximize its potential benefit? Uh, it, it is simply a matter, Craig, in, in my experience of sitting down together and hammering out an understanding that leaves both of you with a very clear roadmap of what needs to be done, what will be done, and when it will be done. Can't think of much to top that. Gary, I want to thank you very much for your uh, time today and your insights. 
Uh, I definitely look forward to having you know, additional conversations as we uh, you know watch broadband <laughs> unfold. And uh, I also want to thank you for being both a supporter and, and a sponsor for the show because you know you, you you understood what we were doing early on from day one, and so that's been very uh, helpful and gratifying. Uh, to, to Craig, I, I've been delighted to be a guest. Um, rural broadband uh, is my passion. Public-private partnerships are a way to make progress in rural America, and I've had a great time. Could so feel. thank you. You're welcome. And I also want to thank our media sponsors, um, Broadband uh, Communities Magazine, uh, GigaOM, and MuniWireless.com, and also Jay Ovatore, who's my uh, online co-host who's keeping things lively in the chat room. So thank you, everyone, for being here today, and jo join in tomorrow. We'll have uh, our U.S. Administrator, Jonathan Adelstein, on the show talking about more money and how to get to it. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.